Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father, we want to thank you for the cleansing that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we want to thank you that as we come to you in Jesus, you see us in his righteousness. And that you're ready to share with us all the treasures of heaven. Lord, help us today and every day of our life in you to lay hold of all that you have for us by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some time ago now, I came across a sadly familiar story, but one with a, a pretty unusual twist. It's the story of a, a woman, she looked to be in her 70s, who lived in a, a small town in Florida and went by the name of Garbage Mary. Now, the, the reason for this name was that she wandered around that town all day, every day, raking through the, the bins and all the other rubbish, looking for food, which at the end of the day she would take back to her dirty little house. Well, eventually things got, got so bad for her that she was picked up by the local police for her own protection and put in hospital. And some unhappy social workers then had the unpleasant task of going to her house and trying to, to sort things out. When they got there, and this is a true story, they found money everywhere. Bank books, stocks and shares, deeds to various properties around the country, oil drilling rights, etc. And when they worked it all out, they found that Garbage Mary was actually a multi-millionaire many times over. And not only that, they found out that this old bag lady was in fact a 48-year-old university graduate. And with the information they now had, they began to dig a bit deeper into their background and they found that she had a hitherto unknown brother who she'd cut herself off from a number of years previously. And he told them that his sister had suffered two very unhappy marriages, which her family felt had contributed greatly to her present state of mental illness. But you'll think about it. Here was a woman who had all the resources to meet her needs and way, way beyond. And here she was, foraging through rubbish, living in rags, and all the time that money lay in the bank. While she collected rubbish, her money collected unnoticed interest. So you see, Mary had enormous resources, but she neglected them, ignored them, perhaps even forgot or failed to realise she had them. I want to say that story illustrates very well the theme I want to play. look at with you this morning, of which Samson is a prime example. And that theme being the theme of misused resources, of resources that for whatever reason are forgotten or abused, thrown to the one side. So let's begin then by looking first of all at the potential of Samson. For we saw last time that Samson had the potential to be the deliverer, or at least to begin the process of deliverance of Israel from one of the darkest periods in their history. For Israel at this time as a nation had been not conquered, but had been seduced by the Philistines. By the use of the material, that is by trade, giving them a comfortable, affluent lifestyle. And by use of the physical, 
persuading the Israelites to compromise their faith by giving their sons and daughters to them for marriage. In these ways, the Philistines had seduced the Israelites and had now, by this time, led them well down the way to spiritual disaster. And at the same time, there was no spiritual leadership in Israel to halt the tide here. No, for this was the time period when the priesthood of Israel was under the corrupt influence of Hophni and Phinehas, the two corrupt, perverted sons of Eli, Samuel's boyhood mentor, who were actually told in a parallel passage that just predates this in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 12-25, men who were so degraded and so depraved that they stole the offering that was given to the Lord and that they even allowed prostitutes to practice in the temple of God. But you see, the Lord gave Samson the potential to do something about this because he had invested enormous resources in this man. The resource to begin with, of a miraculous birth, the details of which we looked at last week. The fact that he was a man born by the direct intervention of God, something that surely could only serve to give him just an enormous sense of assurance as he set out on the work that God had called him to. That he was the specially chosen, the anointed servant of the Lord. And then there was the resource of his godly parents. Now the simple fact of where they lived was in itself testimony to their godliness. For at a time when many of their, their fellow tribesmen, men and women of the tribe of Dan, had moved from the land given to them by the Lord when they'd come into the promised land, well, we're told here in verse 2 of chapter 13 that Samson's parents, that they stayed right where they'd been put, in the town of Zorah, a town that sat right on the border between Israel and the land of the Philistines. And you know, that must have been a costly act of obedience. For them to live in a place with the bitter fruits of Israel's seduction by the Philistines, the, the corruption and the compromise must have been all around them. But the history of Israel, the words of the, the great Jewish historian Josephus, they also testify to the godliness of Samson's parents. For this is what Josephus says of them. There was one Manoah, a person of such great virtue that he had few men as equals, and was without doubt the principal person of his country. He had a wife celebrated for her beauty and excelling her contemporaries. Now, I've just remembered, I forgot to read the passage, didn't I? <laughs> what a wally. <laughs> just disturbed me in mid floor, I was fair enjoying myself there. I'm going to read it. Just so you know what I'm talking about, that would make a change. Judges 14, from verse 1. One day I'll live this down, but it will not be for many. Ah, oh dear. We read, <laughs> Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? 
Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion in part with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was swarms of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and Samson made a feast there, as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given thirty companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me thirty linen garments and thirty sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days they could not give an answer. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father and mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down thirty of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who'd explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his friend, who had attended him at his wedding. Now just to say, there's always a wee bit of gold around, and things, good things happen. I just noticed my wife's away at the crash, so please don't tell her. <laughs> and if anybody does, I'm going to ask your name. Okay, so we've got it. So he had godly parents. That was another great resource that he'd been given. Parents who had given him a childhood where by teaching an example, they'd continually modeled before him the importance of knowing and loving and fearing and serving the Lord. 
And then, of course, there was also the resource of Samson's great physical strength, something that was directly related to the fact that he was brought up to live a life separate and holy to the Lord. And so because of this, so led as a result of this, to him being mightily enabled by the Holy Spirit. Again, the last verse of chapter 13. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtahol. With, of course, this being given, this being a, a physical picture to Israel of the truth that they could only be strong again as a nation. They could only be spiritually strong as Samson was physically strong. The secret of all strengths, the greatest strength, that spiritual strength, they could only be that if they too separated themselves, made themselves holy for God. But all in all, it's clear cut, isn't it? That Samson had been given all the resources that he needed to be the man and to do the work that God had called him to do. He'd been given everything. He had tremendous potential in the Lord. Now what I want to tell you now is that as we are born again by our faith in Christ, in his death and resurrection for us, then we in Christ, by the power of his spirit, so we too, we are given all the resources that we need to be the man, to be the woman that God has called us to be. To do the work he's called us to do. And to have in the course of that the deepest needs of our lives met. In Jesus Christ, by faith, the Lord has given us all we need to fulfill our potential in him. And a great verse, in fact two verses that tell us just something of how this, this comes about, are, are Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10. And it says that in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You see, all the life and grace and the power of God that was made flesh in Jesus Christ is available to us, to the people of God, as we come to the Lord, trusting in him. Available to us. Not so that we can be what we want to be. Not so that we can do what we want to do. No, but rather available to us for the sole supreme purpose of making us more like Jesus Christ. Of furthering in that, through our lives, the cause and the honour and the glory of Jesus Christ. But all the resources of God are available to enable us to achieve that potential in the Lord in far greater measure than they were ever available to Samson. Far greater. And Gary Enrig, in his great little devotional commentary on Judges, he's got a telling illustration that I think communicates very well just what it means when we in Christ, approach the Lord to draw on his resources. For he says, he says, the great blessing of justification is the fact that our sins are dealt with, that we are given new life in Jesus. And the great blessing is then that a believer has been eternally united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He is in Christ by the action of God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, so suppose I, I take a piece of paper, I take a piece of paper and place it in my Bible. And he says, to see that piece of paper, I must first look at my Bible. To deal with it, I must first touch my Bible. In scriptural terms, that piece of paper is in Bible. So it is with my position in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father never sees me without first seeing the Son he loves. He never deals with me without first dealing with the Lord Jesus. My life has been hid with Christ in God. And God the Father always deals with me on the basis of my relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, we know that when we come to the Father, we come to a God who is loving and good and who longs to bless us. And in addition, here we're told that as we come to him, to draw on his resources, that he sees us in Christ. So we can be assured then that the Lord, our God, will always bless us. Again, he won't always give us what we want, but he will always give us what we need. So that, so that in this life, we might grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. That likeness that is ours now in God's sight and in eternity. That we might grow to more and more here and now reflect what we are in him. What wonderful potential then we have in Jesus. Samson, with all his, his great strength, he possessed just a fraction of what is ours. But let's move on from the potential of Samson to look at the disappointment of Samson, the disappointment that he so tragically was. <coughs> For there can be no question that Samson was a great disappointment to his parents, his people, and ultimately to the Lord. And the, the crucial question is what went wrong? What went wrong for Samson? Where did he go off the rails? And, and why did he go off the rails? It's a, and most important of all, is there anything we can learn from Samson that can help us to prevent others and to prevent ourselves from falling into the same kind of trap? And I'm, I'm sure that here I don't have to convince many of you just how important and how relevant this is. For how many of us I've seen people who started off so wonderfully well in the Lord. We've seen it, they started off on fire. We've, we've sensed the, the great potential, the wonderful potential that they have in God's service. But then it's all gone tragically wrong. They've been derailed and, and parents can find themselves and perhaps even more in the same kind of position with their children. They start off so well in, in the Christian life. You teach them and seek to influence them to the best of your ability. And, and you see the potential that they have. And it fills your heart with joy. And then it seems to fizzle out. It dies away. And your heart breaks. And, and you wonder what's gone wrong. And it's so easy to blame yourself. It's so easy to blame anybody. To blame everybody. I've seen it. I've seen it as a pastor, I've seen it as a parent. I've seen it far too often since the beginnings of my Christian life. People 
failing to go anywhere. Starting off well, but falling away. Not realising that potential they have in Christ. And every time I see it, there's nothing that frustrates me and hurts me as much as that. But can we learn something from Samson here? Can we learn just, just why maybe Christians go off the rails? Why they fail to realise their potential? And most importantly of all, is there something that we can learn that can help us to prevent this? Well, is there? I think there's something we can learn here, but we, if we're to find it, I think we have to, first of all, resist falling into the trap of thinking here that Samson's main problem was a sexual problem. And then maybe projecting that into our situation, the, the Christian context, and seeing the, the many sexual problems that are, around, are abound in the church today, and so deciding then that the main problem that prevents Christians realising their potential is to do with their sexuality. Falling into temptation in some way or another. Because, you know, that's just not the case. It's not. Because while Samson did have real problems with regard to controlling the sexual part of his life, and while many Christians today seem to have problems in just the same area, yet that is not the main problem that they have. It's just the symptom that presents itself. Rather, there's an, an underlying problem. There's something that's in there at the roots of the many different sins, besides sexual sins, that lead Christians to fall, that I believe we can uncover here. So as you trace things through, it seems that the beginning of Samson's problem lay in the fact that he was a spiritually superficial man. He was. He wasn't a man of great spiritual depth. Because as we saw last time, he, he misunderstood what separation, what his holiness fundamentally was all about. He didn't seem ever able to understand and grasp that his separation, that Nazarite vow of separation from a few things that that was supposed to be a symbol of a greater separation. So Samson's separation then, his holiness, became a negative thing. It was just a, a few rules that he lived by. But in his heart, he was never really separate to God. God was never really Lord of Samson's life, of his heart and life. He was never separated for the Lord in his heart. And so you see, because of that, it was in this area that the devil first attacked. He attacked Samson's superficiality. He attacked his reducing of his faith to just these few rules. So here, the devil tempted Samson to eat the honey from within the carcass of the lion he'd killed. Now, tell us maybe that's a, a little bit of a disgusting, questionable habit, but not really a big deal. But you see, for Samson, Part of his Nazarite vow, part of his holiness revolved around the fact that he was to have no contact with any dead thing. Now, this might seem just a little thing, but of course that was and that is the devil's genius. Because he knew that so superficial was Samson's face, built on such a flimsy foundation, he knew that once he removed this first brick, that once he got him to succumb to temptation in this first way, that very soon the walls of his faith would almost literally come tumbling down. 
And I believe we can see that that's just what happened. And very quickly, for just a little while later, we find Samson at what I believe must be seen, although it's not explicitly said to be, at a, a drunken party at his wedding or his pre-wedding feast, a kind of Old Testament stagnate, if you like. I mean, 30 men gathered together for these days, giving each other riddles. What else can that be but some kind of Old Testament drunken party? But the fact that you see that Samson would appear to be fully involved, that would seem to me at least to suggest that here he'd broken another part of his Nazarite. That is not to drink wine. And certainly as far as his faith, as far as his walk with the Lord is concerned, it really is, it's just downhill all the way from here for Samson. However, although these, these different incidents are, are kind of dramatic markers, if you like, at the beginnings of the complete collapse of his personal faith, and although here we, we do see, I believe, the devil prizing his faith apart piece by piece, yet I don't believe that even these are the real root of his problem. Now, the real root of his problem is revealed here in his desire to have a Philistine wife. Now, Samson probably, in fact, from what we can see, certainly wasn't so concerned about this. No, because it wasn't part of what, for him, was that all-important Nazarite vow. It didn't form part of that. However, I do believe that it's in this that lies the roots of Samson's problem and of his failure and of the failure of so many Christians following him to achieve their potential in the Lord. Because do you see what was happening here? <coughs> Samson here was setting aside not a Nazarite vow, but the authority of God's word. The authority of God in total. The authority of his word, for example, just... Two verses, Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, where the Lord there specifically told his people not to intermarry with the pagan people in the land that they conquered. And also the, the authority of his godly parents who tried to talk some sense here into their wayward son. Verse 7 it says, his father and mother replied when he told them of their intentions, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? And although it's not specifically actually said here, I believe he was also rejecting the authority of God's people as he did this, of the godly remnant that still existed within Israel. Yes, he was rejecting here God's authority, and instead he was choosing to follow his own desires. Again, there it says, verse 3, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. And this, you see, was the root of Samson's failing to achieve his potential. His superficiality wasn't his main problem. His sexual weakness wasn't his main problem. No, because all of these different things could have been kept in check if only in his heart he yielded to God's authority. So again, we say, Samson's main problem, his root problem that led to all his other problems was that he fundamentally rejected God's authority, God's lordship, and instead followed his own desires. Now, I want to say to you now at this point, 
that today, in an age that far more than Samson's age, has rejected godly authority. In an age where far more than any other age, people just follow their own desires and do their own thing. That's what's happening all around us in our culture. In this age, this to me is certainly in there at the roots of many Christians' failure to fulfill their spiritual potential. You see, it's not our weakness of personality and character. It's not our besetting sins, the habits that seem to plague us. It's not our immaturity. It's not even our spiritual superficiality that's our real problem. Not our real problem is that at heart, at the very heart of our being, we refuse to bow down to God. We maybe say that we do. We say that he's Lord of our life. We say that he is our authority. But when we then go on to reject the means of authority that he gives, then that gives the lie away. When we reject the authority of God's word, you know, just leave it and then go on and do what we like. When we reject the authority of God's people, particularly the leadership of God's people, when we reject perhaps the authority of godly parents, well then that shows that despite what we might say, that we're not actually under God's authority. And until that changes, we are doomed to continue to fail to fulfill our spiritual potential. But we've looked at Samson's potential, we've looked at the disappointment that he was. Let's finish by briefly looking at the encouragement of Samson. By trying to just draw some encouragement from his life. And I, I find that in those words in verse 4 that relate to Samson's marriage. That is, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Now, now I don't believe that verse means that God wanted Samson to marry this Philistine girl. I don't believe that because that would mean God contradicting his word that we looked at earlier. It would mean God contradicting himself. Now, what I believe this means is that God in his sovereignty, in his overruling power, in his foreknowledge, he knew the kind of man Samson was. And he took into account his weakness and yet still was able to use it. And at the end of his life, as Samson repented, as we'll see, as I'm sure we know, the Lord indeed used Samson with all his weakness, all his failures, to do the very work he'd called him to do, to begin that deliverance. Of Israel. Now I say to you, I believe that that should be an encouragement to us all. That with all our weakness, with all our failures, all our mistakes, perhaps our rejection of authority at different points, all our failure to fulfill our potential in Christ, with all of that, we are still only one true prayer of repentance away from being back in the centre of God's will, back in that place where God is able to use us 
again and use even our mistakes and our failures. So there's encouragement here. There is. But what I want to say to you, family, is don't be like Samson. Don't wait till the end of your life to get things right and pray that prayer. Don't be like him. Don't suffer a, a lifetime of heartache and pain. Don't be like Samson. Don't wait till you're broken. No, pray that prayer. Submit to God's authority. And do that now. Let's come into his presence. Father, we want to thank you for that example of Samson and all that it means. We want to thank you for all we learned from it and for the fact that we're reminded that you want to work through the lives of your people. Every person here who knows Jesus has great potential in him. Lord, help us to do whatever we need to do to get right back in the centre of your will. This we pray now in Jesus' name.